from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Welcome to this latest Center for European podcast. I'm Charles Grant, the CR's director, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Hilary Benn, MP for Leeds, who's recently written a CR paper called How to Fix the Northern Ireland Protocol, which is extremely interesting. And we're going to get into the nitty gritty of how it should be fixed. Before I ask him the first question about his paper, let me just say, as many people are aware, he has been a very uh, long serving MP since 1999. He served in the cabinets of Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. He was chairman of the Select Committee on Exiting the European Union until that Select Committee was abolished because I think the Boris Johnson's government thought it didn't need much scrutiny of European Union business. <laughs> He's now a co-convener of, of a commission on the UK trade and business and has been in Northern Ireland as in that role. And I guess he may, may want to say a little bit about what, what that, that involves. But in fact, Hillary and I have been talking about European issues for longer than either of us cared to remember. He, I'm not sure if he does remember. In the late 1970s, I turned up at a meeting of my university student Labour Club and a young man from the Labour Common Market Safeguards Committee came along to convince the young students in the room that Britain should leave the European Union. His name is Hilary Benn. He failed to convince me that Britain should leave the European Union, but I did think his arguments were rather good, particularly on the common agricultural policy. And I did wonder if he might be right after all. But I didn't change my mind that the EU was a good idea. He did change his mind subsequently, I'm glad to say, which is why he supported Remain in the referendum campaign. So we have been having these conversations for a number of decades, but delighted to have another conversation today with Hilary Benn. Hilary, perhaps we could start off by just a word on why you wanted to write this paper for us. What, what was it about this protocol that's so extremely important? Why does it matter? Why do we have to fix the Northern Ireland Protocol? Because the current failure to fix it, the standoff, the frankly terrible relations there are between the European Union and the British government, is preventing us from moving on and addressing following the referendum result and our exit from the EU, what I think is the new big question, uh, which is what should a different economic and political relationship between the UK and the EU look like? Because we've left, we're out of the single market and the customs union, but that doesn't mean that we can't find ways of, of working and trading together with each other more effectively. And Brexit is having an adverse impact on the British economy. Uh, we need to take steps to fix it, but you have to get Brexit politics out of the way before that can begin. And for that to happen, you've got to get the Northern Ireland Protocol sorted. That's the first reason. The second reason is the institutions of Northern Ireland are not functioning. And given the huge importance of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, which created those institutions, um, we really ought to be concerned that they are not operating at the moment because the DUP has chosen not to take part because they object to the way in which the protocol has been implemented and might be implemented in future. So for me, those are the two big reasons why we need to sort this out. And heavens, if you can negotiate the Belfast Good Friday Agreement in all of its complexity, requiring all that political commitment and ingenuity and patient diplomacy, you're not telling me we can't sort out trading arrangements between GB, Northern Ireland and the Republic. 
Well, obviously, Boris Johnson's government claimed that the protocol needed to be changed. And Liz Truss's government, as far as I'm aware, the new government says more or less the same thing. They don't like it at all. It was, of course, signed by Boris Johnson himself less than three years ago. What is the British problem with it, Henry? Why does the British government, having signed this thing, now think it needs to be changed? And obviously that leads on to the question of why, why the DUP in Northern Ireland is so hostile to it. What is their problem? Uh, principally that the, the protocol was indeed signed by the British government. So the problem from the EU's point of view is Britain signed a deal which it now wants to renege on by introducing the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. And the protocol identified the problem and said, we need to agree between us, what are the goods at risk, having arrived in Northern Ireland, of then moving on to the Republic of Ireland. But that was never defined. And what has transpired is that the degree of checks is more than was, I think, expected by some in the British government. Although if you look at the Treasury paper that was published at the time, they were very clear in their own minds about what it would mean. And the nature of some of those checks, for example, Northern Ireland growers can't buy seed potatoes from their traditional suppliers in Scotland. Will there need to be customs declarations on parcels sent from Leeds to Belfast, which is from one part of the United Kingdom to another, and lots of other things. And the DUP have decided that this represents a threat to Northern Ireland's place in the United Kingdom because Northern Ireland is being treated separately and differently. Although everybody knew that if Brexit went ahead, there would be a problem in Northern Ireland because the only thing, Charles, as you know, all parties agreed on was whatever happens, there can be no checks on the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic. No infrastructure, no people, no... Uh, checkpoints, none of that. And therefore, the question is, how do you resolve the dilemma that Northern Ireland would otherwise not be in the single market in the customs union, the Republic would, but you've got a border with no checks. And the Northern Ireland Protocol was an attempt to be the answer by saying, well, in effect, we'll have to do the checks in the Irish Sea. So that is why there is a difficulty. And the argument now is about how many checks do you need? What actually is the risk? How do you identify goods that will remain in Northern Ireland where there should be no need for checks at all, I would argue, because they're not at risk of entering the EU single market? And how do you identify goods that are going to move onwards? And it's going to require compromise and diplomacy to sort this out. And the EU has recognised there's a problem. Uh, Marasevkovic, the commissioner in charge, has proposed... Um, a reduced level of checks compared to what would normally apply to a third country border. Uh, the trouble is, compared with the grace periods, which we have at the moment, when the protocol was implemented, both sides recognised, well, we've only just reached this agreement, people need time to prepare. So there was a, a period of grace periods, which the British government has extended. And if you introduce Marasevkovic's proposals now, they would result in more checks than we have today, and that is not going to bring the DUP back into power-sharing government. Well, given the, the difficulties that the protocol is creating for the governance of Northern Ireland, and indeed, as you point out in your paper, for potentially for British businesses trying to send goods from Great Britain to Northern Ireland, why isn't the EU more willing to just um, rewrite the protocol or make some changes? Or why isn't it more willing to go further than it's gone? What's stopping the EU 
moving towards the British and solving this one? Well, it's a really good question, Charles. I think principally because the the border that doesn't exist between Northern Ireland and the Republic is the external border of the European Union. And never before has the EU put responsibility for checking that goods that cross that border comply with the rules of the single market to a third party, i.e. the government of the United Kingdom. So there's a for them, there's an issue of principle. We need to check goods coming that way, just as we would check them arriving at a, a port in, in Marseille or Athens. Um, I think that's the, the first reason. The second point to make, however, is that the EU has showed some flexibility. For example, early on, if the full EU rules had been applied to medicines traveling from Great Britain to Northern Ireland, then unless they had been certified by the European Medicines Agency, they wouldn't be allowed to come in. And the EU realized very quickly, we can't find ourselves in the position of saying to NHS patients in hospital in Londonderry and Belfast or Craig Avon, I'm sorry, but you can't get the medicines you require to treat you because Northern Ireland is now, uh, broadly speaking, observing the rules of the single market. So they changed European law to deal with that problem. And the argument mm -hmm. I've put to, to Mara Sefcovic and I put in the paper is, if you can show flexibility over that question, then why is it not possible to show flexibility over a number of these other questions so that we can find a way of making the protocol work? Remembering, of course, that the protocol puts Northern Ireland and its businesses in a fantastically advantageous position, because unlike the rest of the United Kingdom, businesses in Northern Ireland sell, of course, to the rest of the UK, but they also have access to a single market of 450 million people. And that is hugely beneficial to the future of the Northern Ireland economy once people are absolutely certain that the protocol is here to stay. And we're coming in a minute, Hilary, to what kind of compromise we might look for to, to solve this problem. But I think that's the point to make first, is if there's no, if there's no compromise, it's really quite serious, because so long as this remains a festering sore, the non-implementation of the Northern Ireland Protocol. The EU has said it's really not willing to do anything else for the British. It's, it's blocked Britain joining the Horizon Science Programme. It's blocked the Britain's participation in the Copernicus satellite system. It's stopped cooperation on energy links between our two energy markets. And it's stopping a whole load of things. I think we, from the British point of view, it's they have a strong self-interest in trying to sort this out uh, rather than allowing things to generate into a trade war. You mentioned the Northern Ireland Protocol bill which I guess may be held up in the House of Lords, assuming it goes to the Lords later in the year. But if the UK does move ahead with that bill, which allows the British government to override and dispense with parts of the protocol, as the EU would see it in breach of international law, then that'll be a significant escalation from the EU's point of view. Equally, something else the British government could do is invoke Article 16 of the existing protocol, which basically says if there's a distortion to economics and trade and society, then the one or other party can call for parts of the protocol to be suspended, and you get into a long negotiation with the other side. That would be seen as a provocation by the EU as well, I think a bit less of a provocation than the use of the Northern Ireland Protocol bill. So it's really very important we do try and uh, resolve these problems. But, but trying to be more positive, Hilary, what would be your main points to both sides on how to achieve a compromise? Perhaps starting with the UK, what should the UK be doing to try and uh, sort this problem out? Well, the first thing should be to drop the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, because in effect, what it does is give British ministers the power to 
pull apart the Northern Ireland Protocol itself and decide what bits are going to apply and which bits won't. And the EU looks at that and says, come off it. You signed this. You agreed it. This is an international treaty. You can't unilaterally destroy it. And it, it damages, in my view, the United Kingdom's reputation in the rest of the world, because other people look at Britain and say, oh, is this now a country which won't honour its international obligations? So I think that's the first essential step, because ultimately it could result in Northern Ireland being pushed out of the single market. Now, the economic consequences for Northern Ireland would be significant because it would lose the advantages I was talking about a moment ago. And who knows, maybe another party in Northern Ireland would then say, well, we're not taking part in the power sharing arrangements because you've taken away from us the great advantage, economic advantage that the protocol gave us, which is why the majority of businesses in Northern Ireland are in favour of it. I think that's the first thing. The second thing is that the UK has to show that it wants to reach an agreement because there is a strongly held view in the EU that when Boris Johnson was prime minister, he just wanted to prolong a punch up with the EU over matters to do with Brexit because he thought it was politically beneficial to him. So the government has to show to the EU that it is serious about wanting an agreement and will honour an agreement if it is reached because the EU side says we give a bit, the UK says thank you, and then they say, but that's not enough, we want some more. So the, the, the fundamental missing ingredient at the moment, Charles, is trust. Mm. There is no trust, particularly on the side of the EU when it looks at Britain. And you, you can only put that in place by taking steps bit by bit to find a pragmatic way forward. On the EU side, they have to recognise, in my view, that they must move further beyond the proposals that Maris Sefcovic has put forward. And I think, in fairness to the EU, they do now understand why the absence of power sharing in Northern Ireland is a major political problem. This is now a political problem that requires a political solution to what is an economic matter, how you regulate trade between uh, GB and uh, Northern Ireland. It would help if enormously if we could have a, a veterinary agreement, what's called an SPS agreement. The standoff there is the EU side says it's got to be in the jargon dynamic alignment. In other words, every time we change our laws to do with food safety, you've got to promise to implement them in full in the UK without having any say as opposed to an equivalence agreement where both sides say, you know what, we've broadly got the same approach. We may do it slightly differently. And of course, the EU has an equivalence agreement with New Zealand. So the argument is put, not unreasonably. Uh, well, if you can do equivalence from New Zealand, well, why can't you do equivalence with the United Kingdom? On the Article 16, I think... Um, we just need to be clear here. Article 16 was created to deal with differences of opinion about the interpretation of the protocol. And I, I think the EU would have to be a bit careful about saying it is a provocation to invoke it because no one could argue that it was not lawful or complying with the obligations that the UK entered into when it signed the protocol to say there is a problem. We're invoking the, the dispute resolution 
uh, mechanism. But having to do that would also be a sign of failure. It'd be much, much better to get around the table and restart negotiations, recognizing that both sides have got to move. Both sides have to compromise in the interest of getting an agreement. Right. And you argue in your paper, Hillary, that in fact, on the key and fundamental issue of friction at the border of goods going from GB to Northern Ireland, the two sides may not be that far apart. The British have proposed a green channel whereby yep. goods destined for Northern Ireland would just be waved through automatically. And then only goods that might move on to the Republic would have to be checked. And the EU's similar proposal is not quite as good as that from a British point of view, but it moves in that direction. So you argue that they're not a million miles apart on the border, but where you, you also point out there are other, perhaps in some respects, more difficult problems, governance, VAT, state aid, which it's quite harder to see how they can compromise on. Would you just like to say briefly why these other issues are so difficult? Yeah, I would also add to that list divergence uh, yes. of, of standards. And, and there the issue is, if there's a divergence of food safety standards, does it matter if a product is in Northern Ireland but stays in Northern Ireland that has a complies to the new British rules and not the EU? I would argue it doesn't. If it goes into the if it was exported then on to the Republic, there is a problem. If people come across the border to do their shopping, then I think it's a slightly greyer area because uh, the public can decide whether to buy a product in a Northern Ireland supermarket that may not meet the current single market rules. Uh, that's their choice. On VAT, um, the UK government wants to be able to apply the same rates in Northern Ireland. The EU's position currently is, well, you haven't asked us. The government's position is, why should we ask you? Because it's a breach of our sovereignty to tell us that we have to ask a third party what VAT rates we want to apply in the United Kingdom. And I, I argue that the way round that is um, partly to recognise the EU is about to introduce greater flexibility in, in VAT in the EU itself. And if the EU said, all right, you apply the rates you want, the only thing we're concerned about is, does this adversely affect fair competition? If we think it does, well, why don't we then invoke the level playing field provisions of the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, about which there was a lot of agonizing before they came to what, in my view, was a sensible compromise. On state aid, the fear has been on the British side that the Commission having a role might then reach back into state aid given in the rest of the United Kingdom. Now, uh, Michael Gove was on record when he was in charge of all of this as saying, I don't really think that's going to be a problem. And I don't quite understand why the government has made it an issue because let's see in due course whether there is anything to worry about. And I, um, other EU member states seem to be able to give state aid in a variety of forms without falling foul of the commission. And uh, I, I say sometimes the way to deal with the problem is, is not to make an issue of it. On the governance, there is a, there's a, an issue of principle here. Of course, if you are going to ask the question, what are the rules of the single market? The only people you can go and ask in the end are the Court of Justice, because they are the guardians of the treaty and the rules. How those rules are then applied to the particular circumstances in Northern Ireland is a separate question, as the Commission changing the law on medicines demonstrated. And then there's a broader point of principle. The UK government says there is no other trade agreement in the world between two parties where the court of one party 
governed disputes about the application of the agreement. Uh, if we had a trade agreement with the United States, which we're not going to have in the near future, we would not agree to the Supreme Court of the United States being the uh, ultimate arbiter. So there is an issue of principle there. I think there is some tweaking you could do to the protocol itself uh, to help you through that. Um, and of course, the government didn't raise these problems at the beginning when they signed the protocol. They only added VAT state aid and the Court of Justice later on, which makes it a bit more complicated. But I'm convinced that with a political will on both sides, you can find a way through those as well. Yes, I think my own humble advice to the British government would be focus on the practical difficulties, focus on the issues that create problems for businesses in, in Great Britain and Northern Ireland, like the friction at the borders, for which we do need an agreement on plant and animal health. We do need some sort of green channel system. But if you talk to the businesses in Northern Ireland, they say they're not particularly concerned about the Court of Justice or yep. VAT or state aid. They are not focused on those issues. I think the British government risks being ideological and focusing on sovereignty issues at the expense of the practical issues that really matter. So I do hope they focus on the practicalities and find some ability to compromise on the other issues, the, the, the sovereignty issues. To conclude, Hillary, what about we now have a new government led by Liz Truss? Obviously, the, the because of the sad passing of the Queen, politics has been suspended for a while, during which time we're recording this podcast. But um, when it's over, politics will return. And are, are we able to say anything yet as to, as to what Liz Truss's approach to the protocol is? I saw just before the Queen's passing uh, an agreement to with between the UK and the EU to extend the, the grace periods, yeah, so-called grace periods, to make things a bit easier, while there's to create room for negotiation. What's your feeling as the way the government is going to handle this issue? Well, that is the big question. Um, and Liz Truss... Um, put forward the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, claiming frustration that the EU hadn't been prepared to move and to put pressure on it. But I've heard government ministers say this is an insurance policy. We'd rather not use it. And Liz Truss repeatedly has said we would like a negotiated solution. So I think the question is, are they, it's the government, the new government, prepared to sit down and work its way through the things that you and I have just been discussing? Because I sense on the EU side, they too see the problem and whatever their frustration, whatever their lack of trust, they would like to get it sorted as well. We have a war in Europe. We have economic crisis. We have energy prices. And we, we can't get on to a better relationship because of sensible things being held hostage to this crisis. You mentioned Horizon Copernicus and other things. And I hope desperately that as the new Prime Minister, Liz Truss, will make this possible and not bringing the bill back would be an important sign. However, the other side of this is the DUP, because the, the question that nobody really knows the answer to is, what will it take to allow the DUP to say, well, we've, we've got something here, we have changed the arrangements, we've made progress, it is now sufficient for us to return to the power sharing arrangement. So there's there's a two-sided negotiation, but both sides are having an eye on the DUP, who in the end will determine whether a negotiated outcome works or not to break the deadlock in, in Northern Ireland itself. But yes. why don't we just get going and try? And, and do you think Joe Biden will have some influence on what happens? Because he, he's due to meet Liz Truss when he comes over for the funeral. And when he had a phone call with Liz Truss in a, uh, last week, uh, earlier in the funeral, 
the White House reported that he had urged the British government to go out of its way to try and find a compromise and negotiate a, a settlement of the Northern Ireland Protocol issues. Do you think the Americans have some influence on this? I do, because it's been very clear for quite some time, and ultimately it's Congress that has the say, there is no prospect of a trade agreement between the United Kingdom and the United States. And remember, you know, Boris Johnson promises the great benefit of Brexit six years on. It's no further forward because that won't happen while there remains a dispute between the UK and the EU over Northern Ireland, and it has an impact on the effective working of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, which is the the most important uh, negotiated agreement in the UK in my political lifetime. And I think that message, I'm sure, has been conveyed. It has been conveyed previously. Congress, Nancy Pelosi, a speaker, and uh, I'm sure the Americans will be saying that too in private. And that I hope will be a powerful incentive for the the British government to realise they've gone down the wrong road, go back to the table, and for the Commission also to make further proposals that enable us to reach a pragmatic compromise, because that's what uh, I long for, so we can get on to things which are much, much more important than this. I totally endorse that, Hilary. I think those of us who hope for a more constructive and fruitful UK-EU relationship must hope that both sides can find a way of compromising on the protocol. Your paper certainly points them in some very good directions, I believe. I would say everybody should download this short paper from the CR website, How to Fix the Northern Ireland Protocol by Hilary Ben. Thank you very much, Hilary, for the paper and keep working with us at the CR. I'm very nice to talk to you again. Thanks so much. It's been a great pleasure, Charles. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.